Before we open the Bible for ourselves this morning, I want to give you a little multiple choice quiz, not really quiz, more of a poll here, something for you to pick. I'm going to describe four men, and I want you to pick which one of these that in your mind is the ideal example of a life of faith. Man number one, a cowardly farmer hiding in a barn just hoping his enemies won't steal his food. Man number two, an army general that was such a coward he wouldn't go into battle unless a woman went with him. Man number three, a professional strongman whose life was characterized by a lack of self-control and ended up committing suicide. And man number four, a superstitious mountain man who ended up sacrificing his own daughter to fulfill a rash religious vow. Okay, so those are your four choices. Which one of those, and you can just answer this in your mind, I won't make you raise your hand, but which one of those four would you say is an ideal candidate of a life of faith? You know, when you think about it like that, the answer is none. And yet, Hebrews 11.32 says, And what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 is a chapter that's devoted to Old Testament saints who did incredible things by faith, or more accurately said, saw God do incredible things by faith. And when you come to verse number 32, you have four men mentioned there, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, whose stories are recorded in the Old Testament book of Judges. But if you know much about their stories you might kind of stop and scratch your head at the fact that they're listed amongst this hall of faith. Because all four of these men were deeply flawed men. They did some very wicked things, some of them in fact. In fact. But none of them, from our perspective, would be exactly what you would call an example of godly living into faith. Well, let me just say that God did not include them in Hebrews 11 because every aspect of their life was perfect. But He included them because what good they did see happen in their lives was because, at least in some measure, they had faith in God. You know, to me, that's an encouragement. That you do not have to be perfect to see God do something great in your life. Because if it were up to us to be perfect in order for us to see God do things, we would never see God do things for us. So at least in this, we are encouraged by this, this part of their stories that God still used them because they had faith in God. But this morning, we are going to begin a, a short journey through the book of Judges. Over the coming weeks, we're going to study some of these characters like Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, whose stories are included in the book of Judges. The book of Judges, in my opinion, is one of the hardest books in all of the Bible to read. So let's go ahead and turn there. We're actually going to start in Judges chapter 2 today. 
Judges chapter 2 is where we're going to dive into this study. And, and the book of Judges to me is, is hard to read, not because of the grammar or the theological content of it, but it's just a sad story. And really, some of the stories are horrible. When we get to the end of this study, um, we're going to have to tread lightly as we discuss publicly what went on. I'll just put it that way. Uh, this is, some of these events are not rated G. It was, it was a very wicked time in Israel's history. The book covers about 400 years of history. Between the time that Israel initially conquered the Promised Land until the first king, King Saul, was anointed. Approximately 400 years of history. So that's a long time. And when you think about it, that's longer than America has existed as a country. Um, if you go rewind 400 years from today, uh, the, uh, the King James Version, for instance, was only 11 years old at that time. All right, So it's been a long, long time. 400 years is a time for a lot of things to happen. And as you read through this book of Judges, you find that it does contain some high points, some happy moments, and certainly a lot of stuff for uh, Sunday school and children's church material. I mean, where would our flannel graph people be without the book of Judges, right? You got to have Gideon, you got to have Samson and all of those stories in there. But honestly, overall, it is very dark. And as you progress through the book, it just gets worse and worse and worse. The very first chapter, which we're not going to cover uh, today, just uh, in summary, talks about how that the Israelites failed to drive out the Canaanites from the land uh, of promise. Now, God had told them, you are to drive all of them out. You're not to leave any of the inhabitants of the land there. You are to get rid of them because if you don't, then they're going to influence you with their wickedness. And remember that part of the reason that God was sending the Israelites in was not only to fulfill His promise to Abraham that He would give him that land, but also to punish the Canaanites that were there for their wickedness and their choosing to turn against God. And remember that as we, as we go through this, this study that these, these Canaanites were very, very wicked people. Their religion involved things like religious prostitution and human sacrifice. So these were, these were not just people who uh, were maybe a, a little bit you know, morally off. These were very, very wicked people. And God had told them, drive them all out so they don't influence you with their wickedness. But Israel failed to follow through on that. They never completely obeyed that command. And chapter 1 tells us that they left some people and put them to tribute. Instead of driving them out, they said, we'll let you live here as long as you pay taxes. And to them, the revenue was more important than righteousness. In chapter 2, as we're going to begin to see today, the Lord rebukes the Israelites for their disobedience. And He tells them, because you would not drive them out, I'm not going to drive them out. God was not going to supernaturally rid the land of the Canaanites when it was a command He had given to the Israelites to do it and they had disobeyed. Instead, God said, I'm going to leave them to prove you. 
I'm going to leave them so that you are challenged continually to choose to obey. And as you go through the book, you find that there is a cycle that repeats uh, all throughout the book of Judges. In total, there are... Um, uh, um, about 12 judges that are, that are mentioned, or 14 judges, and uh, some of them get a, 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 lot, of, um, uh, a lot of time, uh, some of them not so much, but with each of them you have this, this cycle where uh, the Israelites would rebel against God and they would serve idols, and so God would send foreign invaders to oppress them and conquer them, make their life very difficult. Well, eventually the Israelites would, would see the error of their way and God would have mercy and He would raise up a judge, a deliverer, and all the while the judge lived, they would serve the Lord. But then that judge would die and Israel would go right back to their old ways. Only the next time it would be worse. And the cycle would repeat and it would be worse and worse and worse. And so it's just kind of this big, ugly, downward spiral that you're reading as you go through the book. And you see that in the stories of the judges. The early judges, their stories are not too bad. But by the time you get to the end of the book, you're thinking to yourself, is this the best that you can do, Israel? Really? These are your leaders and they're doing these kinds of horrible things? Twice it says in the book of Judges, in Judges 17, 6, and 21, 25, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That is where Israel ended up. Now how did the nation who received the law of God from the Lord at Mount Sinai end up in a place of spiritual anarchy, of moral relativity? where everyone just did whatever they thought, whatever they felt was right. How did that happen? Well, the seeds were planted in Judges chapter 2. When, every, when the Bible says that they forsook the Lord and they followed other gods. Look at verse number 13 of Joshua chapter 2. The Bible says, it's Judges, I said, I said Joshua, Judges chapter 2, I'm sorry. Judges chapter 2, verse 13, And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods. Now we're, we're, we're kind of jumping back and forth through this story here, but how did the Israelites end up doing the same horrible things that the Canaanites had done when they had received the law directly from God and they were God's chosen people. It happened because of verse number 13. It's all because they forsook the Lord and they followed other gods. You know, before Joshua died, he charged the people. In Joshua 24, verse 15, If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua and his generation chose to serve the Lord. But there came up another generation and subsequent generations after that that chose to serve false gods instead. You know, every individual must choose for themselves which god they're going to follow. Either they're going to follow the true God, the God of the Bible, or they will follow a false God, a God of their own imagination. 
And the book of Judges was given to us to show us the unmistakable, the undeniable, the unescapable consequences of forsaking the Lord and following other gods. By the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, Israel has gotten to such a low point that they are almost indistinguishable from the wicked Canaanites around them. The final story in the book is so horrible that it would not even be proper to discuss the details in the presence of children. It's almost an exact copy of the incident that's recorded in Genesis chapter 19 involving Lot and the angels of the Lord in Sodom and Gomorrah. How did that happen? Well, James tells us that sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And because Israel repeatedly disobeyed and rejected God, they became increasingly a culture of death. That's why one of the judges, Jephthah, toward the end of the book, that's why he apparently had no problem making a rash vow to sacrifice his child to God. That's why the Levite that's recorded in the later chapters there was not at all moved by the death of a young lady. And that's why you see Samson, in the end of his story, all he was really concerned about was vindicating himself by killing the Philistines. Because it became a culture of death. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And as I have be, been preparing for this message and these messages to come over the last several weeks now, I, I, I can't help but think about the similarities to our country today. Because America has been in a downward spiral for generations. There has been times, there have been times where you know, for a brief moment, it seems like maybe we were leveling off. Maybe we, we would pull back up, only after to level off for a little bit, we would spiral down further and further. I, I think back to 9-11. That was a time where, for a moment there, it seemed like maybe our country was going to wake up spiritually. We kind of leveled off, and of course we know now that it's only gotten worse. I think back further in history, how many of you remember the moral majority of the early 80s? All right. Brother Riffle raised his hand. He was three, and he remembers that. We, we remember reading about it, right? Okay. okay. Uh, the moral majority, and Jerry Falwell, and that crowd, and, and it seemed like, uh, seemed like, well, maybe our country's going to turn around. You, you go back even further, and the fundamentalist movement of the early 1900s, and there's been times where it's like, okay, maybe we're going to turn it around. But the cycle has just continued over and over and over again. Why? Why haven't we broken the cycle? It's because people continue to choose to forsake the Lord and follow other gods. And what has resulted is that our country today can accurately be described as one that has a culture of death. I think about... Just this recent election, several states had things on their ballots to amend their state constitution enshrining abortion 
as a constitutional right in their state. That's a culture of death. Why is it that movies and uh, franchises, video games and the like, even some music genres glorify violence and death? It's because sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. We're living in a day that is not unlike it was toward the end of the book of Judges where every man is doing that which is right in their own eyes. Of moral relativity and of spiritual anarchy where people are saying, I will decide for myself what is right and wrong and what I will do and what I won't do. And no God and no religious person is going to tell me what is right and wrong and what I can and can't do. And in the book of Judges, as you see this cycle over and over again, you read a story of a judge, like a Samson, and you think, oh, this is wonderful. God's delivering His people. Maybe they're going to turn it around. Maybe it's going to be better. Maybe it's going to be, uh, uh, turn out good in the end, and there'll be a righteous, a righteous kingdom for generations to come. But every time, you're disappointed. Because the judge passes away, and the Israelites go right back to their sin. The judges delivered Israel for a time, but none of them were perfect, and some of them were very wicked. None of them were able to bring about lasting improvement in the spiritual condition of the nation. And when you read through the book, you're left with a definite impression, there has got to be a better answer than this. There has got to be a better judge than this. We need a perfect deliverer who can rescue us from our wickedness once and for all. I believe that is why God gave us the book of Judges. So that we would understand that we need someone better than the best that we can offer. We need God to deliver us from our sin. And ironically, early in the book of Judges here in chapter 2, the perfect judge makes an appearance to the nation of Israel. Look at verses 1 and th through 3 to begin with. It says, An angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal, Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt, and I brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. You know, the message that the Lord gave to the Israelites in chapter 2 is a lesson that we need to learn, and it's very simple. That whenever we stray from God, and do what we think is right instead of what God says is right, the consequences will be painful. That's, it's that simple. When you forsake God and you follow false gods, when you don't do what God says is right, but instead you do what is right in your own eyes, the result is painful consequences. Hardships that are unnecessary, 
because they're caused by sin. So if you want to avoid the unnecessarily hard consequences of sin, then don't forsake God. Follow Him. Notice number one, this special message that was delivered to the Israelites. It says in verse 1 that an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Who is this angel of the Lord? There are some different theories about who this angel is, whether it was just a regular angel. Some people think it was a prophet that was designated as an angel. But did you notice that four times in the message that this angel gave, the angel says, I, in referring to things that God did? Notice, the angel says, I made you to go up from Egypt. I swear unto your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Wherefore, I also said, verse 3, I will not drive them out from before you. All of these personal pronouns, first person uh, personal pronouns, indicate to us that this was not just a generic angel or a prophet or a man or anything like that, but rather that this was an appearance of God Himself. We see this a few times in the Old Testament where God appears. It's a rare occurrence, but this is a pre-incarnate, that is before His incarnation, appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God the Son on earth before He was born of the Virgin Mary many years later. A Christophany, if you want the theological term for it. But it is Jesus the living word showing up to deliver the spoken word and now the written word, the message from God. Notice what this message consisted of. First of all, he begins by reminding them of the things that he had done for them. He said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and brought you into the land which I swear unto the fathers. I delivered you, he says. Delivered them from what? The bondage of Egypt. Now at this point in time, it may have been 60 years before this, because there was 40 years of wilderness wandering, and then there was some time of conquering in the land before the events and judges. We don't know exactly the timeline here, but it's been a little while. And the Lord says to them, I am the one who delivered you. Now that was something they could not deny. If they remembered their history at all, they, they would remember that it was through the ten plagues that God had delivered them out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery and out of bondage. And He reminds them, I'm the one who delivered you. He says, I'm the one who, made, who gave you promises. I swear unto your fathers that this land would be given to you. And He promised that He would never break His covenant with them, the covenant to bring them into the promised land. And then he reminds them, number three, of the commandment that he gave. He gave them in specific instructions about driving out the Canaanites, not allowing them to influence the Israelites with their wickedness. Verse 2, And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of the land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want you to read along with me the instructions that God had given to the Israelites before they entered the promised land. Deuteronomy 7 verse 1. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, 
and hast cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them, and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter shall thou not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son, for they will turn away thy son from following thee, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled, swift, uh, be kindled against you, and destroy thee suddenly. But thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars, and break down their images, and cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Now you and I read that, and I ask you, is there any doubt in your mind what God expected the Israelites to do? He was very clear. Drive them out completely. Leave no remnants even of their wicked ways that might influence you. God had told them to do that. And God had warned them that if you don't, then the consequences will be dreadful. If you don't drive them out, they will cause you problems and you will be punished. Listen to Numbers 33 and verse 55. But if ye will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. God had warned them. Look, this commandment was not given flippantly. There was a good reason that God said drive them out. But yet they disobeyed. And that's what the Lord says in Judges chapter 2. But ye have not obeyed. You did not do what I told you to do. You disregarded the commandment and the warning. And you've left these wicked Canaanites to live with you in the land. Chapter 1 details their disobedience. Why didn't they drive out the inhabitants of the land? One word. It was inconvenient. It was inconvenient. It was hard work. It was a lot easier for them to just make a treaty and say, alright, pay us tribute, give us taxes, and you can keep living here. Maybe they justified it in their mind by saying, well, we're, we're ruling over them. And so we're, we're really the ones in charge here. But it boiled down to simple disobedience because it was inconvenient. Obeying was a little bit difficult. And because of their disobedience, they would have to deal with the consequences. God says, I will not drive them out. God would not do for the Israelites what they would not do in obedience. Don't miss this principle. Because there are so many times where we don't obey the instructions of the Bible. We do things that are right in our own eyes, and then we face the bad consequences of it. 
And we go to God asking Him to fix it. Not, not in repentance, mind you. We'll, we'll talk about true repentance another time. But we go to God because we're sorry of the consequences and, and we wonder, why won't He fix it? And this applies to so many, I mean, every kind of sin that we could, we could commit. When we disobey the principles of Scripture and the commands of Scripture, and then we suffer the consequences, God says, I told you, I warned you. I'm not going to drive them out when I told you to do it and you chose not to. God's not going to supernaturally intervene to erase the consequences of our sin because He wouldn't be a loving God if He did. He's going to allow us to experience those consequences so that we will learn not to sin. Now I want you to think about the, the similarities between the Israelites in the book of Judges and New Testament Christians. I know that most everybody in here today has made a profession of faith in Christ. I realize that. And so I want you to think with me. There's some, a lot of similarities between us and the Old Testament Israelites. We're different, yes, but there's some similarities. We've both been delivered. God delivered the Israelites from Egypt. God has delivered us from the slavery of sin. Think about this. We've both been given promises which are unbreakable. I'm so thankful for that. One of those promises is the promise of eternal life. God has given us the promise of eternal life, and that is a promise that will never be broken. He's given us His promise of His eternal presence. Many, many other things. Another similarity is that we have been instructed clearly about what God expects of us. The Israelites knew what God wanted. And we can know what God wants us to do as well because we have it for ourselves. God's expectations in the Word of God. And there's another similarity. We also have been warned of the consequences if we disobey. Look, God has laid it out there for us. Here's the way to do it. This is the right way. This is the best way. Do this and you will be blessed. If you don't, your life is going to be unnecessarily difficult because you're going to have to deal with the consequences of sin and the removal of God's blessing. And yet, even though God has delivered us, He's given us His promises, He's given us His expectations and instructions, He's warned us what will happen if we don't follow those, yet in spite of all those things, we, like the Israelites, still choose to disobey sometimes. Sometimes we stubbornly persist in that disobedience, refusing to follow through with God's commands. Why? Because they're not always convenient. Now, His commandments are not grievous. They're, they're not burdensome to the point that we can't do it. But there are a lot of times where our flesh would rather do its own thing. Being nice to this person who's being hateful to me, that's not easy. Controlling my thoughts, it's not easy all the time. 
sharing the gospel, when the Holy Spirit prompts me to do that, my flesh says, I'd rather not. And so because it's inconvenient, sometimes we disobey. And so we end up dealing with the undesirable consequences of sin and life is harder than it has to be because we didn't obey. Understand that God would not be a loving God if He made it easy for us to hurt ourselves. How many of you have small children or you had small children and you had those wonderful inventions called baby gates? You know, I'm talking about a baby gate. You know what that is? Raise your hand. I know what a baby gate is. How many of you are like, I don't know what's a baby? No. Okay. All right. You got it. Why do we put baby gates up? Is it because we don't like that kid? And we say, all right, kid, you stay in there and I'm going to stay in here. Okay, honest, sometimes we do that, but not all the time. <laughs> the purpose of the baby gate is to keep the child safe. You know what God's rules are? Baby gates. God puts up this rule to keep us safe. Because if we cross that line, we're going to hurt ourselves. Now just like that little child many times does not understand the purpose of the baby gate. There's times we don't understand the, really the reason for God's rule. Well, why can't we do it this way? And in those times, we need to go back to that simple truth because God said so. That's why we don't do it that way. And God said that because He has our best interest at heart. He loves us too much to make it easy for us to hurt ourselves. So He's going to make it hard. He's going to make it difficult. He's going to make our lives miserable when we disobey Him so that we learn not to disobey Him. We learn not to hurt ourselves. And so we stay in a place of happiness and blessing. He will let us feel the effects of sin because He wants us to repent and to be restored to a right relationship with Him. And so if we don't want to deal with the consequences of sin then we must not disobey God. I've not gotten nearly as far today as I hoped to with this message. I had high hopes of getting through verse 9, but I think I'm going to stop here. I have notes all the way to verse 23 if y'all have got time. I, 3, 4 o'clock maybe, I don't know. But no, let's, let's just stop here. And let's let this truth sink in. That if we forsake God and we follow false gods, if we don't do what He says is right and instead do whatever's right in our own eyes, the consequences will be painful. Life will be unnecessarily hard. And the only person that we can blame is ourselves. So if we would avoid, if we want to avoid, those consequences. And we want to enjoy the fullest blessing of God. Then let's choose to follow and obey Him. Even if it's not convenient.